The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, uh, we're going to get back into our series this morning, where we've been, uh, we're seven weeks into our series, where we've been looking at the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, over the course of about eight weeks, and charting the story as we go. And we've been doing this for a couple of reasons. Firstly, is because I want us as a church to be well uh, acquainted with the Old Testament, to, to have the confidence that when we do open up God's Word, we have a bit of an idea of what's going on and how to find our way through. The second reason is because I want us to grow in our confidence in God's love for us. You see, the reality is that God, the God of the Old Testament is the exact same God as the God of the New Testament who put on flesh and walked amongst mankind. And so the, the message of love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and kindness is the same in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. So we've got to look at that. We've got to see that actually in the Old Testament, the God, God's grace is beautiful in the Old Testament, pointing towards Jesus Christ. So today, um, as we walk through the Old Testament, we're charting through the history of Israel's kings. We're looking um, over the books of 1 and 2 Kings, as well as the prophets who prophesied during this time, which is, of course, a large amount of detail. Like, if if we're doing a a bird's-eye view, this is like... This is like maybe uh, the, the International Space Station bird's eye view of this part of God's Word. Like we're not going to be able to get into too much detail, but rather we're going to be given, I want to give us a bit of an idea of the, of the whole thing, what's actually going on to, to help us as we open, particularly the prophets, help us to, to at least know how do I find my way through this? How do I actually understand what is going on there? So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we, we thank you that you've given us your word to understand and to learn from. And so, Jesus, we ask that as we open your word right now, uh, that you would teach us. Jesus, we ask that you would fill in the gaps this morning. And, and where some of us might have some questions about your word and might feel a little bit embarrassed to ask about it, Lord, we ask that you would fill those gaps today and and cause us as a church to to grow in our knowledge of your word, not just so that we can have a a greater sense of knowledge, Lord, but just so that we might have a greater knowledge of you, that we might know you. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this word. We thank you for what you've given us there, Father. Amen. When I was a kid, we used to go to the same caravan park at Malulabar every year for the two weeks leading up to Christmas. And it was the best. It was the best. It was snorkeling. It was fishing. It was catching sand crabs. It was looking in rock pools. It was surfing and, and body surfing. It was going for walks on the beach. It was collecting shells. It was um, buying Slurpees. It was drinking eggnog. It was fantastic. Like all of, all, it was Christmas at the beach in this caravan, and we absolutely loved going to the same caravan park each year. Now, unfortunately, that caravan park is now a car park and it's actually still a construction site. If you drive through Malulba, you'll see where it is. But if you, if you look there, there's a, there, I think they might have removed the palm tree, but there's like, I used to spend many, many nights on that beach in the caravan and, I, and we absolutely loved it. But the best part of our caravan trip, our, our Malulba holiday every year, was Josh and Jen. Josh 
was a little bit older than me, sorry, a little bit younger than me, around my age, and Jen was a little bit younger than my sister, around the same age as my sister. And so when we got together at Christmas time, because they went to the same caravan park as us every single year, when we got together, it was just the most exciting thing. And we would spend every single waking moment together catching crabs, going for swims, jumping off rocks, uh, drinking eggnog, the works. We absolutely loved it. We loved spending time with Josh and Jen. Now, the thing was, is that our Christmas holidays started a week before Josh and Jen's Christmas holidays. And so we would have a week there just with us as a family. And then on, that, on, the, next, on the Saturday, Josh and Jen would show up. And it was the most exciting day of the holidays when Josh and Jen would arrive. And pretty much from when we got up in the morning, about 5 o'clock, our, our faces would be glued to the back windscreen of the, of the caravan, looking at the boom gate, waiting for Josh and Jen to drive in with their, with their parents in their caravan. And we'd sit there, even though the check-in was until 2 p.m., we knew that. But we stayed there watching the entire time because we just could not wait for Josh and Jen to come. And every time a car came that wasn't Josh and Jen, every time a caravan or a family came that wasn't Josh and Jen, our, our shoulders would slump and we'd go back to pretending to do whatever we were trying to do to d- distract ourselves. And then when they did show up, it was bedlam. It was so exciting. We, we, it would be hard for them to drive in because we'd be just like running around the car just screaming like, Wah! Josh and Jen, like just going crazy. And they'd be going nuts. And we absolutely loved seeing Josh and Jen. It was the best thing to spend time with just these, these good friends of ours that we only saw for a week at Christmas every year. Um, incidentally, when we planted this church, we put the word out, he would like to come and join us for this church plant. And Jen and her husband, Adam, you know Jen and Adam, and their sons, Owen and William, are a part of our church. And it's just really cool. Every time I see Jen, we, we, we have a little bit of mourn together that the caravan park doesn't exist anymore. And it's, it's wonderful to have Jen in our midst. The reason why I share that is because this part of the Old Testament that we're covering today is a bit like waiting for Josh and Jen. See, God made this really significant, this really big, important, exciting promise to King David that God was going to establish his kingdom through, king, through the offspring of David, one of David's descendants. And that descendant would be the king to end all kings. All the promises that God had made to his people from the garden to Abraham uh, to Moses would, would come on the shoulders of this particular king and this king would fulfill them all. And this section that we're walking through today uh, outlines, what, it walks us through the kings that came after David and one by one these kings ultimately failed. They, they were not the one to expect. You see, the covenants that, the covenants that God made with God's people, they had a bit of a problem. They were made with mankind. And even though God was faithful to his covenants, his people weren't. We're a pretty unreliable bunch. We are fickle and faithless where it counts. And the really fantastic contribution, one of the really fantastic contributions that the Davidic covenant makes is that in this covenant, God was going to establish his kingdom through this individual and it would be forever. And we looked at this last week. It would be an eternal kingdom set in concrete forever. It would be permanent and would not be taken away. And so this part of the Old Testament is about waiting for that descendant of David to come. That would be, that he would be, to bring along God's kingdom, his permanent everlasting kingdom. Sick with longing. 
it'd be a good way to describe the way that we read through First and Second Kings. As we read through these kings that come over and over again, we're waiting for this one promised king who God promised to David. So to find our way through this, because there's a lot of material, we're going to be using 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 21 to 23 as a bit of a guide. Now, just so you know, those verses, which are going to be on the screen behind me in just a second, those verses, they don't sum up all of Israel's history. They're not written to do all of Israel and Judah's history. They're not written to do that. But they do provide us a bit of a basic grid to understand the, the storyline of what's going on in this section. So uh, let's read verses 20, uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 21 to 23. When the Lord tore Israel from the house of David, Israel made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, king. Then Jeroboam led Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit grave sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins that Jeroboam committed and did not turn away from them. Finally, the Lord removed Israel from his presence, just as he had declared through all his servants the prophets. So Israel has been exiled to Assyria from their homeland to this very day. I've got six points. Five of them I get from this passage, and these points are going to help us navigate our way through uh, this section of Scripture. There's, firstly, the national split. Secondly, the failure of the kings. Thirdly, the failure of God's people. Fourth, God raised up the prophets. Fifth, the inevitable exile. And then sixth, the promise of deliverance. So let's walk through this now. Firstly, there's the national split and the establishment of a second dynasty. So following David's reign, the kingdom is passed to his son Solomon. Solomon builds the temple, and Solomon leads the, leads the Israelites through a time, during a time of peace. There's peace on all sides. And it's wonderful. As you read through this, it, it, you very much get the idea that this feels like all the promises to, to, to Adam and Eve and to Abraham, it, it feels like it's come true. In 1 Kings 8-10, to it's this high point of, of Israel's history where I feel like you read in Israel's being a blessing to the nations around them. They're being blessed themselves. Uh, Solomon's wisdom is, is being spread throughout the entire world. Um, all this stuff is happening. They are, they are God's people living in God's place under God's blessing. It looks like, it, it kind of feels like as you read this story, you could kind of end the story there. And it would be okay, it would be like a nice rounded off story, like if they were to make a movie of the Bible, a good place to end might be the end of, of 1 Kings 10, because it feels like, oh, like, it's just great. It's just wonderful if you can read that there. But, unfortunately, but, this was not to last. In the very next chapter, Solomon's leadership was beginning to fracture. His downfall was his love for women, and he accumulated many wives for himself, which was a big no-no in God's law for the kings. As a result, his heart was turned away from the Lord, and he began to follow after other gods. Because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, God resolved to tear the kingdom away from Solomon, but not forever, and hand it over to one of his his servants, Jeroboam. Jeroboam. 
And so after Solomon died, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took the throne, but then he enforced hard taxes and labor on the people. And so under the, under the leadership of Jeroboam, the servant of Solomon, the people of Israel rebelled against Rehoboam, and the kingdom was split, leaving Israel in the north, made up of ten tribes, led by King Jeroboam, and then Judah in the south, made up of two tribes, with Benjamin, led by Rehoboam. So it's not long after David that things just go to pass. Like it's just, it looks like it's really great. Solomon comes along, things are going, okay, this could actually happen. And then the nation is split in half. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And that might just be a helpful thing as you're reading through the Old Testament and keeps referencing Israel and Judah. You're like, what does that mean? Israel and Judah at this stage have become separate nations. And then that leads us to the second point, the failure of the kings to lead the people in following the Lord. So with the kingdom split, we now have two kings and two parallel dynasties. The descendants of David are in the south, and then there's a succession of kings in the north. Some of, them, some of the kings are sons of the previous king. Some of the kings are military rulers who have usurped the throne. And this gives us a bit of a structure to understand the story from here on. In Judah, there's about 20 or so kings, and there's eight or nine of them that have some kind of measure of faithfulness, that they, they do good at some stage in life. Sometimes, some are better than others, and then the rest are just pretty terrible. And then you get the kings, there's 20 or so kings in, this, in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're all basically terrible. They're all pretty terrible people. And this gives us a bit of an idea of, of what's actually going on in this part of Scripture. Um, there was a guide for how the kings of Israel, God's kings, should actually function, which you can read in Deuteronomy 17. And and this was to ensure that the kings would rule over God's people in righteousness and faithfulness, leading them in following God, not away from him. The role of the king was to keep Israel walking towards God, keep Israel following God, keep Israel doing that. But the kings collectively do not live up to these expectations. Now, there are some high points. There are some kings like Asa and Josiah who just kick butt. They're awesome. They, they bring God's law back into, the, back into the midst of Israel. They bring um, God's presence back in, or they, they, they bring uh, the, the knowledge of God back to the people of Israel. There are some mixed bag kings, uh, guys like Hezekiah and Jotham. They do good for some of their lives. They do bad for some of their lives. And then there are some really, really bad kings like Ahab in Israel, he's just horrible. Like you read, his, you read what goes on for Ahab and he's just the worst. And we should give a special nod to Manasseh. Manasseh, um, Manasseh if you read in Kings, he's pretty terrible as well. However, if you, if you read about Manasseh in Chronicles, uh, he does, they don't talk, does talk about there about Manasseh turning to God in repentance. And the way that First and, Kings, First and Second Kings reads... You're following these lines of these lines of these kings. That the author's going back and forth, looking at each king of Israel and then Judah and back and forth, looking at them, and it's almost as if he's holding up each king and going, "Is this the one to come? Is this the Davidic king to come? Is this the one that God was going to send?" And with each one, he looks, and he, they say, "No, not that one." And each king more or less ends with that king died and and was buried with his ancestors, and then another one was raised up in his place. And as you're reading through this history of these kings, it's like you're a kid waiting for your friends to arrive at a caravan park, watching each one come going, is that him to come? No, not them. 
Are we there yet? No, not yet. Has he arrived? No, not yet. It's creating this vacuum. This Davidic king, this king to come from the line of David, needed was yet to come. So the kings as a whole lead God's people away from God. Using Manasseh as an example, in 2 Kings 21, 9, verse 9, it says, Manasseh caused them to stray, the people to stray, so that they did what worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Joshua and Judges and just the horrible things that was going on in the land of Canaan before God's people came, and we looked at what was actually happening there. And that's just stunning to me that the sin of God's people is said to be worse than the nations who, had been, who they'd driven at beforehand. And what we said two weeks ago was that when God came, it's, it's a naive, it's a, it's a simplistic thought to say that what God had in mind there is genocide, that he, oh, ethnic cleansing. It wasn't about God against the Canaanites, it's about God against sin. And whether it's the Canaanites or God's people in themselves, if they are sinning, God is going to judge them. And this brings us then to point number three, the failure of God's people to turn away from sin. So following the lead of their kings and not God, the people, they fell into horrendous sin. And when you read the prophets, you see these long sections are given to describe Israel's sin, which is it's complex and it's, it's pretty nuanced and it's detailed. But I think we can basically summarize it with a few key points. Firstly, they were unfaithful to the covenant. Israel had been warned very clearly that if they were faithful to the covenant and careful to obey God and all that he commands, they would receive blessing upon blessing. But if they disregard all that he commanded, then they will invoke on themselves a curse. And this is exactly what happened. Israel was not faithful to the covenant. They persisted in their sin and they disobeyed God again and again. The second issue is idolatry. They worshipped and served false gods. Ezekiel sums this up. He says, But they rebelled against me and were unwilling to listen to me. None of them threw away the abhorrent things that they had prized, and they did not abandon the idols of Egypt. Just that line caught me this morning. None of them threw away the abhorrent things, abhorrent things that they prized. Made me think this morning, what's one of the things that I prize? What's, what's an abhorrent thing that I hold on to? What's something that is in rebellion to God that I'm holding on to in my life? Can I, can I encourage you to ask that question of yourselves? What thing am I holding on to right now that is an affront to God's glory, is an affront to who God is? And, and do I prize that? Am I kind of like God's people here? Their idolatry reached to the point of sacrificing their own children to false gods. That was something that God never commanded and never entered his mind. In other words, they became just like the nations that they had driven out before. The third issue was injustice. As a result of abandoning the Lord and pursuing idols, God's people, to, God's people failed to uphold justice for the poor and for the weak. They instead trampled the poor and they extracted unfair and unjust taxes from them. They prized comfort and luxury at the expense of the poor rather than taking and pursuing justice 
for the widow, for the weak, for the marginalized, for the orphan, for the bottom of society. Speaking on this matter, Isaiah says, that faithful town, talking about Jerusalem there, what an, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. They did not pursue justice for the weak and the marginalized. It's very close to God's heart. Ultimately, God's people in both kingdoms were in a state of moral decline. It took place over several hundred years, and as you read through their unfaithfulness, particularly as we hi- hi- it's highlighted by the prophets, it causes us to ask, is this going on in my life? Like I've been reading through the prophets lately, and I've been taking my time. I didn't mean to. I was trying to get through the Bible in a year. It's not going to happen. I've got, I got stuck in Ezekiel, and I just, everything slowed down for a while. If you've read Ezekiel, you know exactly why. Man, it's, you read that and you go, God, is there, what is the idolatry in my life? What is the injustice in my life? Who are the poor and the weak and the mar- marginalized in my life that I'm trampling over? Micah's words in chapter 6, verse 8, they are as relevant for God's people back then as they are for us today. He says, mankind, he has told you, he's talking about God, mankind, he has told you, each of you, what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. In your actions, have you been just? In your loves, the things that you cherish and, and admire and you have affections for, is faithfulness one of them? When you walk with God, is it with humility? Or is there pride? James has very similar words. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How are you going with that? How are we going with that? Point number four, God raised up prophets to warn them. So while Israel and Judah and their kings grappled to recognize God's faithfulness towards them, God remained faithful to them by raising up prophets to speak on his behalf and call Israel back to him. So reading through the prophets can be really difficult. Let's just acknowledge, acknowledge that. Like, Kirsty and I have been reading through the Bible together and um, we've been reading different Bible plans and I got to the prophets before she did and she was like, oh, you're in Isaiah. Okay, good luck. All the best. I'll see you when you come out. <laughs> um, and then she got to, I was like looking at her the other day and like, oh, you're reading Ezekiel. Okay. All the best, sweetie. I love you. I'll be praying for you. It's hard to read because there's graphic language. Sometimes the prophets are talking to the northern kingdom of Israel. Sometimes the prophets are talking to the southern kingdom of Judah. Sometimes they're talking to both. Sometimes they're talking to none of them. They're talking to other nations. And it can be really hard to to work out who's talking to who, why they're talking, which kings are they talking to, which people are they talking to, and why is there such graphic language being utilized? 
Like there, is, there are times when you read it and you, your stomach turns because of the stuff that these, these prophets do. Like there's, there's a prophet who, who, who walks around naked for three years just to prove a point. There's a prophet who God says, go and marry an unfaithful woman. So he, so he goes and marries a prostitute knowing full well that that prostitute is going to be unfaithful to him as a symbol, as a, as a dramatic demonstration of Israel's unfaithfulness towards God. And you read through this and you, you, your stomach turns a bit because you're like, how is this possible? And it's hard to read. It's hard to make your way through. And so one of the things I want to just point us to this morning is just a few resources that can be really helpful for us to understand. And so at the back, there's one copy of this. Um, I talk about this book all the time, How to Read the Bible Book by Book. When I've got a couple more bo- copies of this this week, and I'll put this one down in the back there. If you don't own a copy of this and you would like to buy a copy, you can buy one of us. I, I bought it for Kurung, from Kurung for $25. If you want to give us $25, that'd be great. If you have only got $20, don't worry about it. Just give us $20. That's fine. Um, if you just take it and put the money into the account later on, I won't tell. I, I, I won't be able to tell. I've got no idea. So I'm trusting you to be honest here. But this book is unreal because it just it walks through the Bible left to right and just goes through each book and says, this is what was written. This is who was written to. So if you are the kind of person, you open up the Bible and you're like, I just have no idea what's going on. This book is wonderful. Um, secondly, is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, we've got these for our kids, but I recommend adults to read this because this is absolutely unreal. If you want to get an idea of the entire storyline of the Bible and how it all points to Jesus, this book is incredible. Um, again, 25 bucks. Again, honesty system. I'm, like, if you steal it, I've got, I'll have no way of telling. So you will easily be able to get away with it. And I will have no, I have nothing to say. I will be, I'll be like, oh, okay, that just happened. I trust you guys. It's all good. Um, that's a really, that, not so much for the prophets, but that's just a good thing for, the, Bi- for um, the Bible in general. Also, at the back, this is something that I've been working on this year through my journaling. Um, I hope it's helpful to you. It displays the list of kings of Israel and Judah, where, they, where they're referenced in Second King, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and then the prophets who were talking during that time, arranged in the best chronological order that I can find, that I can do. Now, it's not perfect. Like, if you've got a, there's, some, there's some PhDs in this room, I, if you go studying this, you're going to find some errors. I apologize for that. Um, and some of the things are disputed. But I, my hope is that if you take this home and have this in your Bible so that when you're reading through the prophets, when you're reading through the kings, at least look at that as a bit of reference and go, okay, cool. Okay, I'm reading Micah. He's either talking to Israel or Judah. I should be able to get a bit of a sense of that. I'm reading Zephaniah. Okay, I, could, I can tell who this is going to. Um, so I encourage you to take one home. There's a bunch of them in the back. Um, they are $50 each, and you can just put them... Um, no. So God raised up these prophets. The prophets were like God's mouthpiece, speaking on behalf of God and acting as covenant enforcers, reminding the people and the kings about God's covenant and calling them back to follow God. And so because of this, they spoke with the authority of God himself. And so when Israel and Judah were doing what the prophets said, they were obeying God. And when they disobeyed the prophets, they were disobeying God. Things went bad for them. And the purpose of the prophets was to call God's people back to him, announcing blessings if they did and curses if they didn't. And one of the things that you're going to pick up on as you read through this is God's unbelievable patience with his people. 
Like he, it is long lasting. It go, his patience is long. He warns them time and time again to return to him, to walk away from worshiping false gods and to come back to covenantal faithfulness. And not only that, but the warnings are clear as day. The warnings about exile, the warnings about other nations being risen up, God raising up other nations to come in and to destroy Israel and to destroy Judah are clear as day in the, in the, God, in the, uh, in the prophets. Evicting them from the land was what was being warned about. Sometimes God's people listen and they obey the Lord and it goes well. God gives them victory in battle. God protects them. Sometimes they don't. Many times they don't. Ultimately, they don't. And they reject God's messages and therefore they reject God and so have to face the judgment. And this brings us to the fifth point, the eventual and inevitable exile of God's people. So what they thought would be totally impossible became their reality. After giving them the law and instructing them in the way that they should live, after centuries of Israel and Judah disobeying the Lord, after sending prophet after prophet to warn them and call them back, only to have those prophets be ignored and even killed, God eventually evicted his people from the land. In 722 BC, around that time, God raised up the Assyrians to attack and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And then around 130 years later, give or take, in 587 BC, God raised up the Babylonians to, take, to attack the southern kingdom of Judah and take them off into exile. And this is one of those times that when you're reading through Scripture and, and you look at everything it took to get Israel to this land, everything it took to rescue them out of slavery in Egypt, to f- fulfill the promises made to Abraham back in the day, and to take them out of the land of Egypt, to take them through the desert, to give them the Lord, to give them uh, their blessing, to provide for them, to take them into the land, and to everything it took to finally get to them into the land. You read this, and it's, it feels like it's impossible. It feels like it's inexplicable. Like, how could this happen? It's hard to use, find words to convey how devastating this is. It's quite heartbreaking. Now, this brings into sharp focus the theme of God's sovereignty over the world and over his people. It's, it's really clear from the prophets that when the Assyrians come and attack the northern kingdom of Israel, they do so because God raised them up to do so. God willed it. When the Babylonians come along to attack and destroy, sorry, yeah, attack and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah, they do so because God willed it. God raised them up to do so. We can't escape the fact that it was God. God was the one who brought judgment upon his people for their sin. And this might leave us scratching our heads. Was God just in doing that? Like, does, does God really work through and in the painful parts of our lives? Can God really bring his good purposes out of every horrible situation? Most of us in this room have been in situations where we have said or thought, how can God possibly bring anything good from this situation? How can God do that? These moments likely shook our faith. I know that some of us are in that boat right now. Some of us in this room are in that boat right now. The question you're asking is, how can God bring anything good out of this situation? And I want us to pause for a moment and consider that whatever has happened 
in your life or whatever is happening right now in your life, whether it's big or small, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a work thing, whether it's a money thing, whether it's illness or death, whether it's uh, an emotional thing, whatever it is, whatever is causing us, whatever that is causing you to ask that question, how can God possibly work through this? How can God possibly work through this? Well, as we read about God's judgment in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, we come across these moments where God reveals his heart to his people. God shows us his heart. You see, the good that God plans and works for the benefit of his his people far outweighs the painful and horrible paths that it often takes to get there. And I don't say that lightly. I don't want to reduce or, or minimize the pain that you felt. I don't want you to think that I'm standing here saying, ah, oh, you know, it's okay, you know, it'll work out in the end. But I do want to reiterate the good that God plans and works for the benefit of his people far outweighs the painful and horrible paths that take us to get there. And actually, the affliction from God upon his people does not reflect the most central part of God's heart, but reflects what some have called his strange work. When we take into full account of the, when we take into account the full gamut of God's scriptures, of God's word, his 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 affliction does not reflect his central what what is actually a part of his heart. Sorry, the central part of his heart. Now, I'm not saying that the pain that we're going through right now is God's punishment. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that when we do experience pain and, and sorrow and, and hardship. We, we can know from God's word that central to his heart, he does not desire to afflict us. For example, just after the Babylonian, Babylonian exile, a book was written called Lamentations, which is a series of poems. And, and these poems, they lament the suffering and the personal agony of God's people after the exile. And, and amidst the deep and the painful lament, there is this hope in Lamentations. And the hope is found in the character of God, in his very heart. And at the literary core of the, of the book of Lamentations, if you go to the very center of the book, go from the left to the right and come to the very center, you come to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 33. And it is there that is the, the literary core, the main point of this book. And it shows us God's heart. So I'm going to read to you from verse 31. For the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. And then verse 33, For he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. So at the core of this book that was lamenting the exile, lamenting what they had been taken through because of their, of their disobedience to God, at the core of it, they understood that he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering to mankind. The ESV translates that verse, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This tells us when it comes to God's judgment, his wrath and his fury, which when you read through the prophets, that is unfiltered. His wrath is not his default mode. His judgment is not a knee-jerk reaction. It is not a hissy fit, nor does he take any delight in it. God's judgment hurts him. Reflecting on this, uh, Dane Ortland writes, the one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine 
reluctance. He is not reluctant about the ultimate good that it is going to bring about in our lives, that is going to be brought about through that pain. That indeed is why he's doing it. But something recoils within him in sending that affliction. When we first had kids, uh, my father-in-law told us that when he had to discipline his kids and smack them, he said it hurt him more than it hurt them. And he's not talking about his hand there, he's talking about his heart. And after having kids for now a bit more than 10 years, man, I feel them. <laughs> There's times where I discipline the kids and I, and I, yeah, I come away going, oh, my, my heart <laughs> it hurts. I, I did that because I love them. They seem to bounce back as if nothing happened. I don't know how they do that, but, but, it, but it hurts. And maybe the judgment of God is something that you're struggling with. Maybe you find it hard to comprehend how the God of the Old Testament is somehow compatible with the Jesus of the New Testament. But can we let ourselves be comforted by the wonderful truth of Jesus in the New Testament that God is working for our good, even in the most horrible things? And can we also be doubly comforted that those difficult and horrible things grieve our Lord? He takes no pleasure in leading us down those painful and afflicting roads, yet he does so because of his good and perfect plan for us. So when you read through the prophets who warned, of God's, warned God's people of his inevitable judgment, you find um, messages of hope. And this is this last point, the promise of deliverance. You find these messages of hope intermingled with these messages of judgment. And this is where we're going to finish up because these messages of hope give us such incredible assurance and confidence in Jesus. You see, the messages of hope are, on one hand, fulfilled for God's people, the ones who returned from exile, then and there. But on another level, they, are, they point forward to and they are fulfilled by Jesus. They promise deliverance, and they give incredible hope to the people who heard them first, yet they also give us incredible hope too, because, we, because as well as promising the fulfillment of the old covenants, they point to a new covenant, that would one day be made with God and his people. One of the clearest examples of this is in Jeremiah 31. Reading from verses 31 to 34, he says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. You see, God's people broke covenant with God. And so a new covenant needed to be made with mankind that could not be broken. The problem was not so much with the covenants that God made. The problem was with mankind's inability to be faithful to them. So what we needed then was someone to perfectly obey God, to fulfill, uh, be faithful to God on our behalf. And this is exactly who we get with Jesus. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus established the new covenant. 
And this is where God's grace reached its absolute zenith point. This new covenant was established in the blood of Jesus Christ. In the old covenant, the high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies once per year and he would take with him the blood of an animal to sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the people. And in the new covenant, Jesus became the great high priest who offered his own blood for the forgiveness of sins, not his, but for the sins of humanity for all of time. And those who are called to believe in Jesus will become the beneficiaries of what Jeremiah said, God will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And the reason for that is because sin was what God, God's people evicted from his land. Sin was what got God's people evicted from the garden. Sin is what separates us from God. And in this new covenant, Jesus takes our sin upon his shoulders and forgives our sin so that we can come into a relationship with God, into a presence with God. And, and, and that is what this is all about. The, Jesus coming to earth was about bringing us to a point where we could have a relationship with God, be restored to God, restored to, to our full humanity in his presence, knowing him. The story of kings and the prophets who prophesied during that time sets us up for Christmas in the most incredible way. It sets us up because we know that this king to come, and when Jesus comes along and is born, we're not just celebrating a cute little story. We're celebrating the fact that God entered earth. He is the king who came. He is the one who put on flesh and came in from the family of David, from the family of Abraham to, f- to fulfill all of those promises. And, and the wonderful thing about this new covenant is that when we trust in Jesus, our sin is removed from us. And the messages of God's judgment that we read that went to God's people, they go to Jesus for us. Jesus was judged. Jesus was condemned. And then Paul writes in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that is the wonderful good news of the gospel, that if your faith is in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. That God does not condemn us because we put our faith in Jesus. He loves us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.